When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter nodded to this disciple and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He then simply leaned back on Jesus' chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That man is the one for whom I shall dip the piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After this, Satan then entered him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you are doing, do it quickly. Now none of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were assuming, since Judas kept the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we need for the feast, or else that he was to give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he left immediately, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads and pray for God's power to be at work among us. In Job chapter 23, Job says, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my daily bread. Father, please help us find much in your word to treasure this morning. For Jesus' sake, Amen. The TV series The Wire is so well regarded for its realism that it's been studied at Harvard University in a course on urban inequality. The Wire is a drama series set in inner city Baltimore and it shows how hard it is to overcome ingrained problems such as drug dealing and political corruption. Each of The Wire's 60 episodes begins with the same song and it's a song about Jesus and the devil. There are different versions of the song in different seasons and the visual images change, but it's always the same song. Here are some of the lyrics. If you walk with Jesus, he's going to save your soul. You've got to keep the devil way down in the hole. He's got the fire and the fury at his command. Well, you don't have to worry if you hold on to Jesus' hand. We'll all be safe from Satan when the thunder rolls. We just got to keep the devil way down in the hole. Don't pay heed to temptation, for his hands are so cold. You got to keep the devil way down in the hole. It's a song about resisting the devil, resisting his power to consume and ruin human life. My guess is most of the show's writers, directors and producers don't believe the devil exists. My guess is most New Yorkers don't 
believe the devil exists and perhaps some of those listening to this sermon don't believe in the existence of Satan and yet the song chosen to prepare viewers for every episode of The Wire was a song about the devil. That's surely because it has a good fit with the experience of countless characters in the show. Don't pay heed to temptation for his hands are so cold. You've got to keep the devil way down in the hole. Today's Bible passage teaches us that the warning in that song at the start of the wire is accurate. It reflects reality. We've got to keep the devil way down in the hole because Satan exists and his temptations can destroy a person eternally. There are three people who loom large in this passage, Jesus, Judas, and John. John isn't mentioned by name, but there are good reasons for thinking that John is the disciple introduced in verse 23. Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Jesus, Judas, and John. Looking closely at each of them will help us see the danger represented by Satan and the power of Jesus to protect us from him. We'll begin with Judas. Our first heading today is the vulnerability of Judas. The vulnerability of Judas. Back in chapter 13, verse 2, in last week's passage, we're told the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. That matches up with what we know from the other three Gospels. By this time, Judas has already negotiated a deal with the chief priests. They've offered to pay him 30 pieces of silver if he hands Jesus over to them. In Matthew's account of that deal with the chief priests, we're told from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. So as Jesus and his disciples gathered for that evening meal, Judas was already on the lookout for the right moment to hand Jesus over to his enemies. And verse 2 from last week's passage says it was the devil who put that desire to betray Jesus into Judas's heart. Think about that. Don't let that detail pass you by. Looking at verse 2, it seems if we could delete Satan from the situation, Judas would never have gone to the chief priests with betrayal in his heart. That shows Judas's vulnerability. Satan had access to Judas's heart and Judas was vulnerable to Satan's temptations. Something similar happens in the Old Testament. Listen to this verse from 1 Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to count the Israelites. The point of counting the Israelites was to find out how many men could fight in David's army. And that was a serious sin because it was a failure of faith in God. David should have believed the truth of 1 Samuel 14, 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. David's sinful counting of the Israelites led to divine judgment with severe consequences for Israel. 
and the whole chain of events can be traced back to Satan inciting David to do what was wrong in God's sight. That parallel with David shows that Judas's experience wasn't unique. Judas was an ordinary human being and his experience reveals that human beings are vulnerable to Satan's tempting. Well, that won't be news to you if you're someone who regularly prays the Lord's Prayer, which finishes, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or as it could also be translated, deliver us from the evil one, Satan. It's a warning we're familiar with, but it's a live warning that we need to keep hearing. We are vulnerable to the devil's temptations. The famous 18th century Bible commentator Matthew Henry says this about Satan's inciting of David. That Satan should influence David may well be wondered at. One would think him one of those whom the wicked one touches not. No, even the best saints till they come to heaven must never think themselves out of the reach of Satan's temptations. End quote. One striking feature of Judas's example is the worsening nature of his condition. Earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 12, we're told Judas had a habit of helping himself to the disciples' money chest. He evidently had a love for money, including ill-gotten money. So when he was offered 30 silver pieces, the equivalent of four months' wages, if he betrayed Jesus, you can see how that would have appealed to Judas. One sin led to another until the moment described in verse 27 in our passage today, when Satan entered into Judas. Looking at verse 27, we need to read between the lines a little. Perhaps before that moment, Judas still had some doubts about whether he should betray Jesus. But it seems from that moment on, once Satan entered him, Judas did Satan's will without hesitation. From then on, Judas was clay in Satan's hands. There's a lesson for us in the worsening nature of Judas's condition. Putting it simply, if you open the door to sin, you may not be able to shut it again. The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once explained it like this. You may say to yourself, I can sin and then of course I can repent and go back and find God whenever I want him. You try it and you will sometimes find that not only can you not find God, but that you do not even want to, you will be aware of a terrible hardness in your heart." End quote. Judas proves that point. He stands as a warning to us that one sin can lead to another until no warmth towards Jesus is left, only a terrible hardness of heart. Think of the kindness Judas had received from Jesus even that very evening. Judas, uh, Jesus had washed Judas's feet. 
In verse 26, Jesus, the host of the dinner, offers Judas a choice morsel of food. Bible commentators tell us doing that was a mark of honour in the culture, a gesture of affection. But Judas's heart remained hard. We must treat Judas as a warning to us. He was one of the twelve and he was fully accepted by all of the others. In verse 22, when Jesus announces that one of the twelve will betray him, the disciples have no idea which of them Jesus is talking about. They don't immediately think to themselves, must be Judas. Bet it's Judas. Only one person around here would do something like that. Judas. No, it wasn't like that at all. They were perplexed. They genuinely did not know who the betrayer would be. Judas was a fully accepted member of that first community of faith in Jesus. And yet his final state was darkness. Verse 30 says, So after receiving the piece of bread, he left immediately, and it was night. In John's Gospel, night stands for spiritual darkness. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8 verse 12. And so those who don't follow him stumble in a night with no dawn, John 11 verse 10. When Judas turned his back on Jesus, he walked out into the night spiritually as well as literally. He was led by Satan into spiritual darkness. It's right for us to look on Judas with healthy fear. He was a member of the community of faith just as we are, and then he walked away from Jesus into the night. If you experiment with sin, you're walking away from Jesus towards spiritual darkness. Follow Jesus and you have the light of the world. The alternative is nightfall. Judas's vulnerability should serve as a warning to us. Sin is dangerous, eternally dangerous. Don't go down that sinful path you might be thinking of going down. If you do that, you can't be sure you'll ever find the way back. It's time for us to move on to the next part of the sermon. Much more comfortingly, today's passage also gives us an example of spiritual confidence. Our second heading is the confidence of John. The confidence of John. Verse 23 says, Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's number one of four references in John's Gospel to the disciple whom Jesus loved. The next reference comes during the crucifixion. John 19 verse 26 says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. The other two references to this disciple are found in the last chapter of John's Gospel, where we're told that the disciple whom Jesus loved is the one who has, quote, written these things, meaning he's the author of the Gospel. And according to early Christian tradition, the author of this gospel was John, the brother of James. And that makes sense because John has a very prominent role in the other three gospels, but he's never mentioned by name in this one. Putting all of that together, it does seem right to identify this disciple whom Jesus loved as John. Verse 23 says that John was lying back on Jesus' chest. 
We need to picture the 12 disciples reclining on cushions around a U-shaped arrangement of tables with their heads towards the tables and their feet away from the tables. The custom was to lean on your left elbow so you could take food from the table with your right hand. That means John was on Jesus' right, which allowed him to rest his head on Jesus' chest. Now, you might perhaps find that strange, John lying with his head on Jesus' chest. It's helpful to remember that gestures of physical affection differ from one culture to the next. Some people consider regular hugs too intimate. They prefer the side hug. In Italy, friends kiss one another on the cheek regardless of gender. That doesn't happen here in America. In the Arab world, male friends typically hold hands without any embarrassment. That's not something British men would do. We need to take off our cultural spectacles. What we see in verse 23 is a picture of affectionate friendship. That's how we should view it. John's physical nearness to Jesus explains why the rest of the disciples aren't aware of the information Jesus gives in verse 26. Only John hears Jesus say that he'll give the piece of bread to the one who'll betray him. But there's another more important reason why John's nearness to Jesus calls for our attention. It reveals the confidence John has that Jesus loves him. We only move in for a hug if we think our hug will be welcomed. And it must have been like that with John. He wouldn't have lent his head on Jesus' chest unless he was sure Jesus loved him. John's confidence is also seen in the description he gives to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, Jesus loved the other disciples as well, and John knew that, but John understood that Jesus was offering him personal affection, personal friendship, and personal loving kindness. John was confident that if he rested his head on Jesus' chest, Jesus wouldn't push him away. One of the breathtaking truths of John's gospel is that Jesus' love for his Father in heaven is the same love that he has for people like John and you and me. All the way back in chapter 1, John says this about Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The ESV translation of the Bible says in its footnote to that verse in John chapter 1 that at the Father's side is literally in the bosom of the Father. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. And the Greek word for bosom, kolpos, is the same word that's translated chest in verse 23 of our passage today. Do you see, what's, do you see what John's saying when you hold that verse in John 1 
with verse 23 in our passage today and, and, and look at them. Jesus is in the kolpos of the Father, John is saying. And John lay with his head in the kolpos of Jesus. Jesus' people have the same nearness to him that he has to God the Father. Think of the contrast. When Judas walked away into the night, John was at that moment resting his head on Jesus' chest. See that contrast in your mind's eye. Judas departing from Jesus, John enjoying Jesus' presence. There's a sense in which what Judas and John experienced in that moment is what they will experience for all eternity. One departing from Jesus, the other enjoying his presence. Take hold of that contrast. Cement it in your memory. Don't forget the lessons of that contrast. We've looked at the vulnerability of Judas and the confidence of John. Let's now turn our attention to Jesus. Our final heading is the mastery of Jesus. The mastery of Jesus. Today's passage inevitably makes us ask how God's sovereignty relates to human responsibility. Jesus, the Son of God, knew in advance that Judas would betray him. He makes a firm prediction at the start of the passage that one of his disciples will betray him. And as we've seen, he reveals the identity of that betrayer to John in advance. If the Son of God knew in advance who would betray him, did Judas actually have a choice in the matter? Did he have genuine agency? The Bible teaches that these two things are true at the same time. God is sovereign over all of human history and human beings are responsible for our actions. They're true at the same time. The egg yolk of human responsibility is bound up within the egg white of divine sovereignty, but the yolk is distinct from the white. You may have further questions about that issue, but one thing I hope we can all agree on is that Jesus wasn't trying to give us a philosophical problem when he predicted Judas's betrayal. His purpose was to show that he was in control. Betrayal, arrest, flogging, unjust condemnation, crucifixion, all those things might look to the disciples like dreadful, unforeseen developments. Jesus wants the disciples to grasp that he himself won't be taken by surprise when those things happen. Judas's betrayal will set all those events in motion, and Jesus predicts it as a token of his foreknowledge. It shows his control. If you're watching a movie with a friend and the friend says a line of dialogue just before the character says it, one does not simply walk into Mordor. You know immediately that your friend has seen the movie before. It's like that with Jesus when he reveals his betrayal before it happens. 
It shows he knows everything that's about to take place. But Jesus' mastery of the situation isn't limited to knowing the future. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, John says the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. Jesus has power as well as knowledge. Nothing can outmuscle him. All things have been handed over to him, which means when Jesus himself is handed over to his enemies, that event is what he has decreed should happen. Jesus' power over all things is seen in an extraordinary way at the end of verse 27. By this point in time, Judas is Satan's man, but Jesus continues to tell him what to do. He says, what you're doing, do it quickly. Jesus acts as if he still has authority over Judas, because he does still have authority over him. All things have been placed in his hands. One final aspect of Jesus' mastery is his mastery of himself. Verse 21 says that Jesus became troubled in spirit. Judas, his companion and friend, was about to turn against him. Jesus wasn't immune to the pain of rejection. He felt the force of it. He was fully man as well as fully God. And so he had to control his own human emotions, the sadness and grief. And he had to continue demonstrating self-control throughout the sufferings of the following day. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, which gives us a window into his thinking. He pushed himself through the agony of the crucifixion because he knew the outcome would be eternally joyful. The cross was a demonstration of astonishing self-control. We've seen the vulnerability of Judas, the confidence of John, and the mastery of Jesus. We can pull those threads together into one chord. Lean in to Jesus and he will protect you from the darkness. Lean into Jesus and he will protect you from the darkness. He has the power to protect you. Don't walk away from him into the night. Place your head on his chest. We know he can be trusted because of what unfolded over the next three days. He went to the cross laying down his life for our sake so that our sin might be taken away and punished through his sacrificial death. Then on the third day, he took up his life again rising in victory to return to the bosom of the Father. Jesus' mastery over all things continues. He can be trusted. Reflected on, reflecting on this passage, the Bible commentator Bruce Milne says, if Jesus, in his purpose, used the dark forces within Jerusalem at that time, he can still master and harness the darkness which daily threatens our personal lives. He can still make darkness the vehicle of his praise. I'll read that last line again. He can still make 
darkness the vehicle of his praise. Jesus can be trusted. We should rest our head on his chest. There are things we can do to lean into Jesus. When we read the scriptures, we're listening to his voice. He's God. The Bible is God-breathed. All of the Bible is the voice of Jesus Christ. When we pray, we're speaking to him. When we spend time with his people, we're drawing near to the spirit of Christ in them. Christian songs help us meditate on his love. The person who wants to lean into Jesus will do those things because they help us know him better and love him more. Leaning into Jesus isn't a vague slogan. There are things we can do to press into his love. There are steps we can take. Rest your head on his chest so that darkness will not fall upon you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are filled with healthy fear as we consider the example of Judas, how he was an ordinary human being who gave way to Satan's temptations and walked out into eternal darkness. We fear that outcome. We pray, Father, that you would help us press in to Jesus and, as it were, lean our heads on his chest. Father, we pray that you would give us confidence in Jesus' love seen at the cross. Give us confidence in his mastery of all things, even the aspects of darkness we see around us. He is in control. We pray, Father, that you would help us meditate on his love. May we be able to say with John that we are the disciples who Jesus loves. Amen. <laughs>